Well, we will be in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Find us on page 1016 in the Pew Bible. Be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we have all heard uh, various uh, versions, uh, different versions of, of phrases like live like there's no tomorrow, right? In order to motivate us to make the most of our time now. But no one actually takes that seriously because we honestly expect to see tomorrow, right? If you actually live like there's no tomorrow, then you will be broke and homeless in short order, right? So if you actually live like there was no tomorrow, and, and if you live every day like there's no tomorrow, you would, it would not go well for you. Um, but I wonder if we treat Peter in a similar way here when he says, the end of all things is at hand. He's like, ah, Peter, you're just doing that again, right? You don't really mean that. And uh, in, well, but what happens at the end of all things? Well, Peter mentioned it earlier in the chapter. He, he just mentioned that it. it was the judgment of God comes at the end of all things. And Peter is going to mention the judgment of God that starts with the church in verse 17 in chapter 4. So before we get, so, it, so it's, our passage here is kind of sandwiched between two mentions of the judgment of God. And so we have a pretty good idea of what Peter means by the end of all things is at hand, is nearby. And so Peter isn't uh, saying, though, uh, you know, he, he's not saying uh, live like there's no tomorrow. But Peter is telling us, he is exhorting us to live with the end of all things in sight. To live in light of the judgment of God that is to come. If the judgment is about to come. If it's a judgment that we will escape only by the blood of Jesus Christ. A judgment that will set the universe to rights. How do you live in light of that imminent reality? How does that imminent reality that is coming we don't know when. But it is near. It is near as Christ is near. If, if, that's, if, that, if that is the reality, how does that affect how we operate at work or in our homes and our relationships? If we don't listen to Peter, then we may just end up living like the rest of the world, which doesn't believe there's a judgment coming. 
the closest thing that most, you know that our culture gets to judgment is that the sun's going to explode in, 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 in you know in half a million years or whatever. So, and so there are two broad areas of our lives that Peter applies this this understanding of the judgment of God that and how it should apply how we view things. And so, uh, and he he says that it should affect how we view our relationships. And then also our gifts and how we use them. And so we'll look at each one of those tonight. And in verses 7 and 8, we see how this view of the, the, the judgment to come is, uh, affects us in our relationships. And the first one is our relationship with God, as Peter talks about prayer. And essentially tells us that the judgment of God should lead us to pray with a clear head. He says that the judgment of God, the end of all things, ought to move us to be self-controlled and sober-minded, and that this is directly related to how we pray. Now, the concept of self-control here means to be prudent, or reasonable, or even sane. It means to keep your head when things are going crazy around you. To be sober-minded is related to self-control because it requires self-restraint. But again, Peter says that this is about how we pray, which is interesting. How does one then have a sane and sober prayer life? Well, one scholar wrote that this means at the very least that we are to pray with a focused and alert mind, but I think it's more than that. And so just kind of, you know, sometimes it helps if you can't, if you're not making too much headway going this way to go from it backwards. And so, and so we go, okay, well, let's start from the other end. We want to pray. We're commanded to pray. We know we should pray. What stops us from praying? What are the obstacles to prayer? Well, we often pray for the wrong things. Even Scripture tells us that. We pray with the wrong motivations. Um, uh, we uh, have the wrong goals for prayer. We don't have time to pray. We're too busy. Uh, secretly, we don't want to say, but we don't really believe that prayer makes that much of a difference functionally in our lives. There's a whole host of reasons or obstacles that people can run into, and some they'll feel bad about feeling, but it doesn't um, uh, it's still if it keeps you from prayer, then then what what are these obstacles that keep you from prayer? But when we see the end, when we see the final judgment that is to come, when we see the kingdom of God that is to come, it helps to clarify a lot of things for us. Perhaps things that we felt or that we feel are so important and pressing upon us right now, they might just pale a bit. Right? As I was, for some reason, I kept thinking of the, there's, I forgot who said it, but uh, um, if you have ten problems coming down the line and you do nothing, but, uh, eight of them will probably fall off before they get, before they get to actually get to you. So, so it just, uh, like those things that seem so important, right? Um, our schedule is filled up with so many things that, uh, that, that when we see the judgment of God, when we see the end of uh, all things, and we have that in view, it may help us to see our need for prayer and the things that are actually needful to be prayed for. When we have the end of all things in mind, our prayers will probably be a little more focused on Jesus, a little more focused on the lost, our faith, endurance, holiness, and grace. 
I've I've heard it's helpful. I actually have a whole book that's entitled this, and you can get the the whole gist of the book from the title. It's Praying Backwards. So start your prayers with, in Jesus' name, and that will radically radically, uh, change some of the things that you pray for. Because then you start going, well, if I'm going to pray for this in the name of Jesus, and then you start thinking about what you're praying for. But uh, it, it, it is a helpful, it's helpful sometimes to flip things on their head. Now, people will often say that we need to teach with the end in mind, but pro- part of the problem is, is that no one can agree what the end is that we're teaching for. What's the goal? What's a, where are we headed that we can teach towards? Likewise, if we don't have a particular end in mind, a goal or a destination that we're headed towards with our prayers, then we can lose sight and direction for our prayers, not only to whom we're praying, but also uh, what we're actually praying about. And And we're reminded that our prayers don't occur in a vacuum, but they occur, our prayers occur in, in time and space, in the plan of God, in the history of redemption. Our prayers, our, our, our prayers are the are means by, that God uses in order to enact His will. And so that ought to inform how we pray as well. Further, we can't forget all the pressures, the negative pressures especially, of persecution and verbal disdain and abuse uh, that threaten Peter's audience here. Right? Um, how might those things affect your prayer life? They may purify it. They may drive you to prayer. And other times they may cause you to despair as you, as you see yourself or your loved ones being uh, brutalized for the, you know, because of your faith. But Peter is teaching us that to let the coming judgment uh, to, to make our prayer life sane and sober in light of the true reality of the end of all things that is to come. Second, Peter says that, um, that in light of the end of all things, we need to love one another in the church. Peter says four things about loving one another in the church. That, that is what he's talking about here. doesn't mean we shouldn't love those outside the church, but he is particularly saying Christians ought to love one another. Four things he says in this little, this little statement he makes. First, he says that above all, uh, loving this, he says this is uh, this is above all what we should be doing. That is the prior. There's a priority to loving one another in the church, and that should be the top priority in the church is to love one another. Um, there are other priorities that have uh, taken over churches um, that that compete with that priority at, at times, and and it's always to the church's detriment. It's always to the church's. Uh, weakening uh, when the, when other other priorities begin to compete with or uh, out sh- overshadow the call to love one another. I mean, what was it that Christ said they would recognize us by? How we love one another, right? And so uh, we should not be surprised if we either abandon it or we let other priorities take 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 over that we become less recognizable as Christ's disciples. And, and the second thing he says is that uh, we should keep doing it. That we should keep, he says, above all, keep loving one another. Keep on doing it. Persevere in love. There are many obstacles to loving one another in the church. Each of us at times can be quite unlovable, right? And so, uh, and 
and so in the midst of persecution and hardship and affliction, love is desperately needed between Christians. Third, he says, loving one another earnestly. Uh, love for brothers and sisters in Christ must be, uh, must be earnest. And that, that Greek word there is actually has a pretty specific meaning. It means to be, it must be persevering, uh, which with the implication, I'm quoting from the, uh, the essentially the Greek dictionary here, um, with the implication that one does not waver in one's display of interest or devotion. That is, Christians are to love one another and we don't fake it. Our concern for each other is genuine. And when our concern for one another is not genuine, when our love for one another is not genuine, then we do the internal work of prayer and repentance and and personal sacrifice and reconciliation to ensure that it is. Peter is um, saying here uh, that our love then uh, for each other ought to be constant and unwavering. We don't abandon each other. And this is critical because, as Peter says, love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, there's some debate here about what that means. Uh, some have argued that uh, Peter is saying that uh, Peter is talking about the love of God here that covers over a multitude of sins. And that is true and accurate, but that is not what I would argue Peter is saying. Peter is saying here something more along the lines of the words that he says in, of that Paul says about love in 1 Corinthians 13, about love is patient, love is kind, you know, love does not keep a record of, of wrongs, uh, that type of thing. Or Proverbs 10 verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And so, and so what I love about that is that Christian love in the, within the church is not a pie-in-the-sky fantasy that has no category for interpersonal sin. Right? The Christian love for one another assumes that there is sin in the midst of God's people, where people are sinning against each other, and there must be forgiveness and seeking forgiveness and the giving of forgiveness, that loving one another involves that. We know that. Because if you truly love one another, then what is it gonna, it's going to involve Knowing each other, spending time with each other. And guess what? If you know somebody and you spend a lot of time around them, they're going to tick you off. All right? They're going to do something that hacks you off or do something that makes you mad. They're going to do something that's legitimately wrong. They're going to do any, and what it's like, you know, um, you know, a perfect marriage, right? There's no such thing. But at the same time, a loving marriage doesn't mean the absence of conflict, right? Um, now, and so it, it's, now it doesn't mean the abundant presence of conflict either. But, um, but what it means is, is that, that when there is conflict, it is resolved. That love seeks out. Love reconciles. And so I love the fact that he includes this in, uh, in the Christian relationship. He doesn't assume that, oh, well, in true, true Christian community, there's no sin. There's no this, that, or the other. And people almost act like that. And reality go, no. We sin against each other. Um, and, 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 this, and so... What this involves when we get into it, what does it mean? What does it look like to love one another in this way? It means for the most part, we look over, you know, very small grievances or small annoyances, right? You look over those things. It's the glory of man to overlook an offense, Proverbs said, right? And so, so we overlook things. But even when there are sins that cannot be overlooked, when there are even grievous offenses that have occurred, Christians work together to restore and reconcile. Right? And I love Matthew Henry's uh, note on this text, on, on this passage. 
because he 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 said he 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 pointed out how in the church it is not enough to simply not hate each other. Like you cannot just not hate each other in the church. We are called to active, intentional, sacrificial love for one another. That is the requirement for being a part of the church of God as brothers and sisters in the family of God. Third, Peter says, we need to show hospitality. That is, we need to welcome one another. Peter says we need to show hospitality without grumbling. And recall that uh, hospitality in the ancient world was more than just inviting somebody over for lunch after church. Hospitality is when people show up to your house at midnight, and you not only do you need to feed them at midnight, you need to feed and water their, their any animals they have with them. You know, give them a place to stay. I mean, it, it, hospitality is costly in the ancient world, right? Because there's no motels, there's no hotels, there's no places for them to stay, and uh, and so it would be inconvenient, it'd be costly. You're literally giving out of your own pantry, and in that day and age. There wasn't always a lot in the pantry, right? And so, uh, and and so, we aren't given the exact circumstances here from Peter as to why or how these Christians needed to show hospitality to one another. Uh, but but Peter is clear that they needed to be prepared to show hospitality when called upon, and to do so without grumbling. And we don't need to go about recapturing the exact practices and customs of the early church in, you know, ancient uh, Asia Minor. Like, that's not going to be beneficial to us. But hospitality is, the, is a tangible expression of that love that Peter was just talking about. Because he's not talking about hospitality to strangers, although I'm sure he would say, yes, show hospitality to others. But again, he's still talking about within the church. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And, and, what, and, and so this is welcoming fellow believers into our homes. It provides opportunities for mutual encouragement. And the warning against grumbling is good for all Christian service. If we are clearly called to a work by the, by the word of God and he has given us the opportunity for it, um, uh, then we do not serve God well if we are grumbling quietly under our breath while we go about it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, when we, uh, when we grumble about going about it, essentially that's, God's not going to reward us if that's what we're looking for uh, out of that. So we're like, well, I did it, right? It's the third time this month. You know, it's, you know what do you want? And so Peter calls us in this section, these two verses, uh, in the life of the church and even in our relationship with God, he calls us to a sane and sober prayer life, a earnest abiding love for one another, and a particular expression of that love through joyful hospitality. And, and because we have the view of the end in mind, here, these are marks, pillars of Christian community. But it's interesting that he, I think that he picks these three. Because there's more, certainly, that he could have mentioned here. But imagine a church, imagine our church, without this. A church where our, prayer, our prayers are carried along only by the latest news break, where every wind of cultural change 
or every momentary shift in our mood. A church where love is not the marker, but a cold formalism, unforgiveness, and merit-based relationships where you keep a spreadsheet about who owes who what. A church that does not welcome each other because, you know what, you should be good enough on your own. You don't need to come to my house to eat, so quit whining and go, you know, go do your own thing, right? That is not a church that belongs to Jesus, that reflects him. He said the world would know us by how we love one another, how we pray, and how we show hospitality, express that love. They show that at the heart of our community in the church is not a careful, carefully crafted set of traditions, as important and necessary as tradition is, but that the heart of our community is the love of God for us in Jesus Christ. And so Peter is teaching us to apply an awareness of the end of all things, of the coming judgment of God to our relationships with God and with each other. And next, we apply that awareness of the end to our giftings. And we see this in verses 10 and 11. Because uh, we are, Peter says, uh, after all, stewards of God's grace. And so God gives his people in ways that are a blessing to one another. Paul argues in Ephesians 4.13 that the gifting that God gives to his people is for the building up of the body to equip the saints for ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. But we are gifted... In different ways, as Paul famously wrote about in a different letter, describing our varied gifting like being different parts, different parts of a body. Right? Somebody's an eye, somebody's a hand, somebody's a foot in their giftings. Not everybody can be the eye, because as I you know, say, that would be creepy. Right? If everyone's the eye, then it's weird. And it's... And so as Peter talks about this here, as he applies the same principle here, he describes our very, uh, he describes, he says, look, there's not only different um, types of gifts, but even different degrees of gifting. And so Peter says that in, in whatever way and to whatever degree we are gifted by God, we ought to use it in service of one another. The purpose of our gifts of why God blesses us with that type of gift, whatever it is, is to be a blessing to someone else. That that blessing and that gift that God gives us is not meant to terminate in ourselves, but that God wants to use us to strengthen and bless the church. And so we operate as stewards of God's very grace expressed through our gifts for the benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Just as each of us has received grace from God, so each Christian has been gifted by God to serve. There's both an empowerment and a humility here. It's empowering, especially to those uh, believers in the church who think because of a variety of internal and external reasons that they have nothing to give to the church. 
that they don't have anything of material benefit to really bless and strengthen the church. And Peter says, no, no, no. You are a recipient of God's grace and gifting. You have been gifted by God and just as sure as you have been given grace by God and therefore you too can be a blessing to the church. But this is also a humbling reality because there are those who, for a variety of reasons, believe or at least act as though uh, their gifts are really for their own benefit or that other gifts are for them or that the church is just there to look after me. But the church calls upon everyone to exercise the gifts. And the gifts that we have, no matter how celebrated or ignored they may be, are gifts that God has given to us to be a blessing to others and even to a blessing to those outside the church. And then Peter breaks it into two categories of gifts, speaking and serving. Now, the word there for speak is not the same word as preaching. So I don't think uh, that it's, there's actually a specific word in the Greek that translates as preaching the gospel. Which is the verb that's derived from the, the word gospel itself. But uh, that is not the words here. The word here is a general word for speaking. And, then, uh, and, so, and so this seems to be intentionally broad. And that basically just saying, look, Peter's saying, look, if you use your mouth and your voice in service to God, right, that's what the speaking. And then the other category is presumably using your hands, doing some kind of labor, work, some kind of service uh, for God. And so he says, look, if you speak to others in service to God, then you ought to do so carefully, faithfully, patiently, even as the prophets of old who spoke the very oracles of God. To have the kind of carefulness about our speech when we are speaking on behalf. I mean, we are called ambassadors for Christ, each one of us, right? That we carry as believers the ministry of the gospel and we go around. And when we speak to others about Jesus, so we're speaking exhorting a fellow brother or sister in Christ, uh, it's, uh, something about God, then we ought to have the kind of um, gravity as the prophet who would say, thus saith the Lord. It doesn't mean that what we say is thus saith the Lord, but we should have that kind of concern and wait if we are going to speak on behalf of God to someone. Because we speak not by our own authority, but by Christ's authority. This applies certainly to uh, teaching and ruling elders who preach and teach. This applies to Sunday school teachers who teach the scriptures uh, to students and adults. This, uh, this applies um, to uh, even to parents as we rear our children and teach them, instruct them in the ways of God. This applies to us individually as we speak to others about Jesus. If we're not speaking and we're serving with our hands, then we serve, we need to know, not by our own power, our own ability in a way that fuels our pride, by our perhaps our own natural talent. We don't serve because we're so awesome, but we serve by the power that God supplies, the strength that He supplies. And I was thinking about this, and it, and it reminded me of, I mean, can you imagine being one of the Levites who is just... Not, not one of the important ones. I mean, I just not the priests, but one of the Levites that was just carrying around part of the tabernacle. 
You know what I mean? And maybe not the most important part, but at least part of it. He's carrying one of the poles or something. You know what I mean? He's just carrying one part of the tent, part of the fabric or whatever. But when you go and you go to put that thing together, and you're just like, God's going to be here. Right? Imagine the kind of hands-on service and the kind of how you would handle those things. That's the, that's the kind of picture that I get with what he's saying here. If you're, if you're going to serve and if you're going to speak, man, speak like a priest, like a priest, you know, handling the holy things, you know, like it just kind of that there's, there's that kind of weight. And then if you're going to serve, serve as one handling the holy things of God and know and have that kind of privilege and honor and at the same time reverence for the work that we do. And finally, this, this Peter says that all of these giftings, the, 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 uh, the speech, the speaking that we do for God, the service that we do for God, all of it is for one particular end. The purpose, now the purpose of using these gifts is different from the effects of these gifts. The effects of faithfully speaking on behalf of Christ and serving as the hands of Christ, the, the effects may be a strong and vibrant church by the grace of God. It may be help that is given to orphans and widows. It may well be the faithful proclamation and wonderfully uh, the reception of the gospel. The effects of the use of our gifts in the church are as varied as the grace of God itself in us. But the purpose is singular. The glory of God through Jesus Christ. This highlights the truth that our service for God in any capacity is only successful through Jesus. But ultimately, we are doing all of this that God may be glorified. That he would receive the praise and honor that he is due. That by the ministry of Jesus in the church, the kingdom of God would increase. Now we're planning our one day vacation Bible school events. Right? And so there's speaking parts and there's service parts, or there's service parts, right? There's everything from prepping food in the kitchen to prepping materials to decorating to, uh, to practicing uh, the lesson and teaching and, and, you know, skits. And, you know, this is, you know, even just a one day event, there's a lot of stuff and a lot of, lot of moving parts. And, and, you know, it's like, well, what's the goal here? What's the purpose in all of that? You know, why is it? Is it because we want to recover the VBS's, the, the VBS glory of the past, right? Uh, or is it that we want to do, you know, this, that we can list probably even some good and noble goals that we want to do that. But ultimately, why are we doing it? We're doing it for the glory of God through Jesus Christ. We're doing it that children in the church that are related to the church, connected to the church, would come and hear the gospel and be strengthened in the faith, that families would be built up, that the church would be strengthened and built up, and that any children who are families who don't know Christ would come to faith in Christ. Right? But ultimately, it has to be for the glory of God. Um, and so when it comes to service, in, service uh, in the church, in this way, whether it's speaking or it's or doing something, uh, I always... I do believe in responsibility and Christian duty, that we have a responsibility to do certain things. Absolutely do that. At the same time, I do not ever push people to be grumbling servants. And uh, I would just as soon cancel a minister 
than have a, a bunch of grumbling servants going through it. I'd be like, whoops, you know, and so if we don't have people who want to do something and have a desire to do it, um, then because what you want to avoid, and I've seen it in churches before, is to go, well, it's your turn. I did it last year, and it was terrible. It's your turn now. And we have to do it because we've always done it. All right? And it's like, well, no, we don't. (laughs) So unless it says in the Bible you have to do it, you don't have to do it. So why in the world do we put people through that mess? Right? And so we always have to ask ourselves, why are we doing this? And it comes down to the glory of God through Jesus Christ for this to benefit these particular people or this particular end. If it's not about that, then why in the world are we doing it? Because we're not commanding it. We're just taking time and resources away. We're exhausting people. So what is it that, that God has actually called us to do? And then to do it with all our might and, and ask him to bless it. Because the judgment is real and the end is coming. Again, that helps clarify things. That should give us a healthy view of our lives today. That should affect how we view our community as Christians in prayer and love and hospitality. And as we deploy the gifts that God has given to us, we ought to do so with not just the judgment that is in mind, or the end of all things that is in mind, but the end to which Peter directs us, the glory of God through Jesus Christ, which is also coming to a greater fullness and glory at the end. And Peter ends the passage here where we end, with a doxology. To him be belong glory and dominion forever and ever Amen. And so don't miss the big picture here. Our service to God in whatever capacity or degree is part of the glorious dominion of God expressed now in the church of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we have a powerful Savior and that through Him You bless us and give us the opportunity to bring glory to you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would indeed use us. Use us to bring glory to you by how we speak about Christ, how we serve one another in Christ. May we bring glory to you through our prayers, through our love for one another, and through how we show hospitality. Please guide us, Father. Lord, please lead us to where we have erred and sinned in these areas. Lead us to a, uh, back onto the true path that we may follow in faithfulness and give a faithful testimony as to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And Lord, above all, may all that we do and all that we say be to your glory through the name of your blessed Son, And we pray all of this in his name. Amen.